Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of Meta Strategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guests today are Pat Grady, a partner at the venture capital firm Sequoia Capital, and Clint Sharp, the founder and chief executive officer of Cribble. These are two separate conversations focused on the trend of observability, which enables one to inspect and understand one's IT stack. Pat is an investor in this space, and Clint's company is focused on optimizing the collection, analysis, and storage of observability data, dramatically reducing companies' infrastructure spend. In this interview, Pat discusses some of the key trends regarding observability, the benefits of taking a best-of-breed approach to it, and why observability is part of the solution to data privacy. We discuss some first steps those low on the maturity curve relative to observability can take, and why it's been a key to the digital acceleration that's happened during the pandemic. Lastly, we discuss how COVID has dramatically accelerated Sequoia Capital's business and some of the indelible marks that the pandemic has left that will become permanent. Pat has a significant track record of success, as his investment portfolio, past and present, has consisted of companies like Zoom, Okta, ServiceNow, and Snowflake. With Clint, we discuss the biggest problem he sees with the emergence of observability, why it's become an important trend, and how Cribble is able to reduce its clients' infrastructure spend by 30% on average. Prior to founding Cribble, Clint was the Senior Director of Product Management at Splunk. Well, Pat Grady, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Great to be here. Well, Pat, you uh, you are a partner at Sequoia Capital and uh, have been for nearly 14 years. I thought maybe just as a starting point, you could talk a little bit about uh, the areas of emphasis and focus that you have. What are the what are the uh, topics or areas within technology uh, that you particularly focus on within Sequoia? Great question. So I was lucky to join Sequoia in early 2007, which was at the front end of the cloud transition. People forget Salesforce.com went public in 2004, so the cloud was not an unknown thing. It was just pretty early on. And so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to seize upon that and try to understand what was happening with SaaS, what was happening with cloud more generally, what were the implications for infrastructure and developer tools and the other areas of enterprise technology. And so over the last decade or so, that's been my focus, more so at the application layer than in the infrastructure world. And I've been involved with companies like Okta and Medallion, ServiceNow and Snowflake and Qualtrics and HubSpot and uh, and a bunch of others. Yeah, very hot hot area, as you say, and, and good good timing on your, your part, to say the least. Um, you know, I, I know that one of the areas that you focus on as a subset of that is observability. And it's a topic that is uh, rising in importance, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people listening today who are less familiar with the topic. So I wonder if you could begin with just sort of a, a definition of it and reasons why you believe it's a concept on the rise. I'll start with why it's a concept on the rise. When we talk about observability, it's very easy to jump right into the technical aspects of it, but I think it's actually a lot easier to understand if you just zoom way out. And if you zoom way out, everybody knows that software is eating the world. Most people can see that the way software is produced is becoming more complex. It's becoming more simple in some ways, but it's becoming more complex in the sense that there are so many different pieces to the puzzle. There are public clouds, there are private clouds, there are hybrid clouds, there are, there are every 
every possible developer tool you could imagine is available to make use of every possible open source database alternative and lots of different open source libraries and plenty of different methodologies that go into the eventual production of software. So the amount of complexity that is involved in delivering a software application has been on a continuous rise for the last few decades. This plays into the theme of observability because observability is basically taking a look at the interplay between all of the different components required to deliver a software application and seeing what's happening. Usually people use that to make sure that the application is actually running and it's actually performing the way that you want it to. And so that's what people call application performance management or application performance monitoring. Um, Another thing people do with that is make sure that the application is secure, make sure that there's been no data loss, make sure that you're not getting breached. And historically, that's what people would call SIM, or now they're starting to call SOAR. Um, and then sometimes you get business insights by watching what is happening in the application itself. And business data tends to be somewhat distinct from observability data, but there is overlap in the middle where the clues that you get from observability help to drive your business understanding. And, and when people talk about observability, I guess more specifically, it is the machine generated data produced by all the different nodes in a network um, that gives you clues as to how things are working. It tends to come in three forms. It tends to come in logs, metrics, and traces. And different companies have sprung up around logs, metrics, and traces. Um, and it tends to be used in a variety of different ways. But the overall category of observing what is happening in your infrastructure and in all of the components required to deliver a software application, that's the category. And are you are you investing in companies in, in each of the lanes you just defined, logs, metrics, and traces? So most companies are trying to converge logs, metrics, and traces. From a customer standpoint, it's nice to have everything in one place. And a good example of this is Sumo Logic, which is lucky enough to make its public market debut just a couple of months ago. We've been in business with them for the better part of the last decade. So Sumo Logic is one good example. A trend that we're seeing in observability, which is fairly new and which led to a recent investment in a company called Cribble, led by a former Splunk team, led by Clint Sharp. Um, a trend that we're seeing is what I would call what I would call specialization of labor. Um, any dynamic system, whether that's human beings or technology or business relationships, any dynamic system at a certain scale, begins to uh, break into specialized components. Like this is kind of a fact of life. We've seen it in a variety of contexts. And if you look at the observability ecosystem, it's becoming big enough and it's becoming complex enough that specialization of labor is starting to set in. What I mean by that is historically companies in observability have tried to own a particular application end to end or they've tried to own a particular kind of piece of the puzzle from start to finish. Increasingly, we're seeing some of the, some of the larger and more sophisticated customers out there starting to make their observability data or make their machine data kind of look like their business data, meaning there is a role for a data pipeline to get to, get, to harness all the information. There is a role for 
something like a data warehouse. In the case of business data, that would be Snowflake. In the case of machine data, that could be Splunk, or that could just be an S3 bucket at Amazon. Um, and then there's a role for the actual use cases or the tools that you're going to use on top of that data. And that comes in a variety of forms. It could be APM or SAM or something else. Um, and on the business side, it could be product analytics or it could be a bunch of different things. So we're seeing we're seeing machine data start to mirror business data. And as that specialization of labor sets in, the question is, well, which pieces of that will become the most strategic? And part of the intrigue around Cribble is the data pipeline is kind of the first part of that. It is upstream from the rest of the functionality and it becomes very customer-friendly way to gain freedom over your machine data, meaning you are not beholden to a particular vendor whose full-stack approach is the only one you use. You can actually use a bunch of different vendors and use Cribble as kind of that first piece that allows you to direct your data to whichever vendor is best for the particular use you have for that data. Very interesting. Um, a colleague of yours at Sequoia, Bogomil uh, Balkansky, noted, and I'm quoting here, every company has become a software company and observability is how you keep that software on track. Despite all the tools available, troubleshooting is incredibly hard. And some of the complexity you've just described would certainly uh, underscore that. But I wanted to focus on the difficulty of this uh, a little bit further. Why is it so difficult um, in, in your mind? Yeah, as, as these systems become so complex, they introduce um, layers of abstraction, which makes it easier for people to do your job, do their jobs. If you're a developer, you don't necessarily have to worry about infrastructure. You can focus on writing code that solves a business problem. But every time one of those layers of abstraction is introduced, you might be separating yourself from the root cause of an issue. And so troubleshooting has become complex because rarely does one person actually see everything end to end. You have a, you know, you have a server that is running at AWS. You know, you have a, um, a database that's being hosted by a third-party vendor. Uh, you have an application you've built that actually has 25 different open source dependencies within it. There are so many different pieces from so many different parties that come together to deliver software applications today. Getting visibility across all of those different pieces is incredibly tough. And that's why the troubleshooting problem can be so, so tricky. The, the the topic of data privacy is a, is certainly a, a topic on the rise, uh, both for personal reasons, as all of us contemplate uh, the degree to which we we wish uh, uh, or, or would allow companies to use our data in ways perhaps we're, we're, that are not entirely knowledgeable of. And naturally, as an offshoot of that, companies need to be much more aware of it as well uh, because of the implications of that, the growing regulatory uh, aspects that they need to be aware of and so on. Um, talk a bit about your own perspectives on on data privacy related to this and the kind of tension, perhaps even healthy tension between, you know, consumers evolving thought process around this and enterprises need to be cognizant both of those as well as um, of, of the, the regulations that might impact how they do business. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons to take a best of breed approach to observability. Taking the best of breed approach, meaning you might have Cribble for your pipeline, you might have a variety, a variety of companies to act as, as storage, so to speak, whether that's Splunk or S3 or whoever, and then having a variety of companies providing application-specific functionality on top. Taking that best of breed approach maximizes your ability to 
make sure that you don't have any foot faults when it comes to data privacy, <laughs> meaning the more instrumentation you have around your observability data, the more likely you are to not inadvertently run afoul of any sort of regulation. And so I think observability is part of the solution to data privacy um, and, and not part of the problem. I, I think if you hear the word observability, it's easy to think, wait a minute, what are you observing? Is this a privacy thing? Um, but the truth of the matter is it's, it's part of the solution. It's not part of the problem. Excellent. And, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, so for, for people who may be listening who are less mature, they're lower on the rungs towards uh, a degree of, of appropriate uh, uh, maturity related to the topic of observability. What are some of the steps you would recommend? And I, I especially want to uh, underscore the point you made earlier that uh, it's all well and good. And oftentimes people will quickly think about solutions, but there's a broader kind of cultural people process aspect uh, to this as well. You know, what are some of those you know, early stages um, uh, or steps that you would recommend that organizations that, as, as I say, are early in, earlier in this uh, evolution or journey that they might undertake? I, I, think if you're, I think if you were early in this journey, um, you would probably want to start with a platform that is user-friendly and somewhat fully featured in terms of its functionality. And Sumo logic is as good as it gets when it comes to that, particularly if you have a cloud-native organization because it's the first cloud-native machine data platform out there that can be used for a variety of, of use cases. So I, for somebody who's new to this, I would recommend start with Sumo logic, get the out-of-the-box functionality, figure out how it fits into your organization. Chances are you're going to have operational use cases related to keeping applications running. Chances are you're going to have security use cases related to making sure that um, nobody's getting nobody's getting breached and there's no inadvertent data loss. Um, and once you have that mapped into your organization, you, you may find yourself in a position where you kind of want to take it a step further. And you may love Sumo logic, but there might be particular corner cases for which you want to introduce some sort of best of breed tool. And that's where you start thinking about something like Cripple. Because something like Cribble in that case is a perfect complement to Sumo Logic that also helps you take advantage of some of the other tools in the ecosystem. So I kind of say step one, figure out a platform that is right for you. And step two, um, you probably want to start using something like Cribble to have a little bit more freedom and flexibility around your data. And who are the personas or roles within organizations who are typically leading this from your perspective? Is it the chief information officer? Is it somebody deeper within the, the, the technology or digital organization? That's one of the tricky things about this ecosystem is that it's these products can be a little bit like a Swiss Army knife. You can use them in a lot of different ways and you can use them at a lot of different levels. So you could be the C-level security executive. You could be the CISO and you want to use this technology to make sure you're not getting breached. Or you could be an individual developer and you just want to make sure that the thing you just pushed into production is actually running as intended. And so it, it kind of ranges from the IC level all the way up to the C level, and it spans operational groups that are putting applications into production um, to some of the you know security and other infrastructure or support oriented groups. So it's it's a fairly wide ranging thing. I would say that the if you if you wanted a singular landing point, I would probably look toward whoever has been the champion for the transition towards something that looks and feels more like DevOps, because those people tend to serve as a centralized, um, they, tend to, they tend to have a centralization function where they're already acting as the bridge 
between some of these different pieces. Um, and that makes them a natural, a natural place to go for expertise around this topic. And, and has the, um, has the pandemic and, uh, the, the quarantine, uh, and the just sort of changes in the way in which organizations are doing business, has this impacted this trend in some meaningful way, uh, in your mind? It seems to have accelerated it. I think because bricks and mortar companies no longer have that option the way they used to, they've migrated online faster than they would have historically, or hybrid businesses have emphasized their digital presence over their physical presence. I think because the world has been shoved online and in a dramatic way over the last seven or eight months, um, the entire ecosystem of tools around digital businesses has, has kind of taken off. And observability is key to that. If you're anybody who sells something online and your website goes down for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours, that's lost revenue. And observability tools are what keeps your website up and running. And so there's kind of a direct correlation between your competency around observability and your ability to drive revenue if you're running a digital business. Hmm. I, I wonder also, um, beyond observability, talk a bit about sort of how your own um, investment theses have changed during 2020, the extent to which they have. I mean, you're presumably doing deals with entrepreneurs whose hands you've never shaken. You, you know, I'm sure are becoming aware of, you've already talked about some of the you know, uh, acceleration of, of digital transformation that's happening in a lot of organizations. We're certainly seeing that all things being equal, uh, those organizations that began uh, their digital transformation earlier and more to a more steadfast degree are oftentimes the ones who are have been most resilient during this uh, during these most unusual times. Talk a bit more generally, if you would, Pat, about your observations from this most unusual year. It's been an accelerant for our business, just like it's been an accelerant for lots of other businesses. In the case of our business. We like to meet founders in person because we're developing long-term relationships that will hopefully last decades. Um, and that means that we get on a lot of planes and we get a lot of Ubers and, you know, trips around the Bay Area and uh, in New York and Boston and Salt Lake and wherever else we can find great founders. Um, but in a world of Zoom, there's no need to get on the plane. There's no need to get in the Uber. And we can just meet founders back to back to back to back, which means we can develop those relationships from a distance, but much faster than we might have otherwise. And from their standpoint, they can meet a bunch of different investors and choose who's going to lead their next round a lot faster. Yeah. And so our business has accelerated dramatically. If we look at the trends in our portfolio, I think most folks have the same reaction back in March, which was to step back and take stock of their prospects for the year and craft a worst case scenario plan and then maybe a couple of slightly more optimistic plans. And I'm happy to say that pretty consistently across the portfolio, things have gone better than people might have feared. And the, the demand environment for consumers, but also for businesses, has been just as strong this year as it was last year, if not more so. And so I think generally folks have adopted pretty quickly to a new way of working and businesses are spending money today, just like they did a year ago, which is kind of encouraging for the, for the health of the economy. Some of that might be stimulus driven, but a lot of it probably is not. And so it's, it's fairly encouraging for what might happen, you know, once things do get a little bit back to normal. 
And and what do you, once things do get a little bit back to normal, uh, how, how much of the old way of doing business will return relatively quickly and how much do you think is changed for at least the medium, if not long-term as a result of some of your observations? Like if, it, if your competitors are flying off to, to Boston or Salt Lake city or some of the other uh, cities that you've just mentioned in order to meet entrepreneurs, uh, what, whereas you kind of continue to pursue sort of the, the, the uh, you know, parlay the advantage of the, the volume of people you can meet with through Zoom, you know, how quickly does, does, the, does the pressure to get back on planes uh, uh, begin to, to present itself? I think if you, if you were to survey our, our partnership, you will have a variety of, of opinions in response to this question. Um, we, we are in a service business and we, we exist to serve founders. We want to help the daring build legendary companies from idea to IPO and beyond. And if that means that we need to be there in person, we're going to be there in person. Um, and so I think for us, it'll be very founder driven. As far as our hypotheses on what the world's going to look like, we don't know if it'll be 90% remote, 90% in person, somewhere in the middle. We do know that we've had this amazing hypothesis test over the last seven or eight months in response to in response to the hypothesis, oh, you cannot do X remotely. But you can do pretty much anything remotely. We've now proven that over the last seven or eight months. And so um, it will be it will be much harder for companies to explain to employees why they have to be in the office from nine to five, five days a week, now that it's been demonstrated they don't. And that, that'll lead to some pretty interesting changes in business. And that'll lead to some pretty interesting knock-on effects and things like education and real estate and some of the other implications that are more personal. Yeah. Well, Pat Grady, thank you so much for uh, sharing your perspectives on observability, some of your broader perspectives on uh, where you're investing and why, uh, as well as the consequences of the these most unusual times. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Clint Sharp, welcome to Technovation. Great to speak with you today. Yeah, me, uh, you too. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Well, uh, so Clint, you are the uh, co-founder and chief executive officer of Cribble. And maybe you could just take a quick moment for those who are not familiar with the business to just uh, kind of familiarize those folks with what it is that you do. Yeah, Cribble, uh, we make a, what we call an observability pipeline. And uh, that pipeline is a streams processing engine purpose-built for uh, observability data and security data. So uh, organizations which are uh, running large IT shops, security shops, they have to consume mountains of data uh, in order to, to understand their environment, to understand uh, end user response times, to understand uh, the security posture of their, of their enterprises. And they use a lot of tools to accomplish that. Uh, and our product helps integrate all those tools and, and process massive amounts of data as it's moving. And it allows them to, to route data amongst those tools and, and help them control costs by uh, getting rid of a lot of junk and noise data that just isn't particularly interesting to them. And what was the inspiration into getting this? You, you were a, a leader at Splunk prior to this, as I understand other uh, members of your co-founding team were as well. Um, what were your observations, um, using that term in a different way now, but uh, mm -hmm. that led to your uh, you're pursuing this entrepreneurial path. Yeah, I, I've been in logs and metrics for a long time. I, I, before I was at Splunk, I was a practitioner. Uh, I, I lived the life of, of an operations person having to run 
complex infrastructures. Uh, you know, uh, we we would probably call it microservices now. You know, com- complex uh, interdependencies at an enterprise. I found my way to Splunk. Uh, you know, because I just I really believed in in that product. And uh, uh, one of the things that we observed during our during our Splunk years was was kind of the evolution of this multi system future. That you know. People who need to secure and operate their enterprises, they're they're not finding just one tool solves what they need. They they find they have they have many tools. They have a logging tool. They have a uh, they have a, a data lake or an object store where they're dumping lots of data. They have uh, time series databases which have emerged over the last uh, half a decade to give them the ability to store and process large volumes of time series data. Uh, they have kind of the new data lake houses like you know your Databricks and your Snowflakes, uh, and Unlike in the BI world where, you know, kind of an ETL type of idea where I, I've got a, a, you know, something helping me move data amongst all of these is, has, has been a pretty common concept. In observability and security, these tools are just not very integrated. They, they, they generally require a kind of custom coding or custom scripting and, and just uh, uh, connectors that, that people have to kind of cobble together themselves. Uh, and it seemed like an opportunity to really integrate the world and, and give them the ability to run their enterprises in uh, uh, to pick and choose the tools that they wanted and and potentially rechoose later and be able to move data amongst amongst all of them without being locked into to one particular solution. Ultimately, all driven by cost. Uh, they're spending tens of millions in some cases a year just to run these systems, and so you know they really need a way to to get more. Uh, they don't really have a lot more budget, but they they got a lot more they need to do, and and we really uh, felt like we could go help them. You know, maximize the value of, of all of this data that they were gathering. Yeah, and in many ways, you're you're speaking to the complexity of the modern technology executive. There is so much data that is produced in in a, in a you know typical enterprise. The the complexity, of course, of of keeping it secure, as you highlighted as well. But on the flip side, um, there is the uh, complexity of managing an ecosystem of partners to help you in the various ways uh, in order to realize value as well as to ensure the the security of, of all of that data. H- how do you think about Cribble's position in the broader ecosystem? How do you work with the, the companies that are in adjacent spaces or, or in comparable territories that a, that a technology executive might, might also be employing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really our, our sweet spot is, is integration in a place where there wasn't really integration plays before. Uh, and so, it takes something like AWS. AWS has hundreds or thousands of of different individual log shapes that get emitted by various services. I need to grab CloudTrail and CloudWatch, but my security people want that. But I, I may also uh, want to be throwing that into something like a Datadog, uh, or I want to throw it into a, a you know another time series database, or I may want some of that data. Maybe I want to do some machine learning and AI type of technique, so I want access to that in my Databricks notebooks. Uh, Really, what we found is that uh, there, there's a lot of integration plays, but not really for the persona that we focus on, which is IT and security. Uh, and so for them, they needed much more of a solution and less of a widget kit. They, they, they're not developers. They, uh, they can probably write some code, but, but really they, they have a lot of different jobs that, that they need to do. And it's hard for them to focus on you know, building. You know, they don't have weeks to go spend building an integration. They, they need to do it much faster. Uh, and so, you know, we, we see the real problem, which is people have all of these things that they have in their portfolio. Uh, and, and really for us, we, we pretty hyper-focused on, you know, site reliability engineering, DevOps, DevSecOps, uh, and modern security uh, infrastructure where we felt like they were being underserved. 
What are the, what do you see as some of the biggest impediments, uh, generally speaking, to observability within companies? This is certainly a rising trend and it speaks to, uh, you've already covered uh, thematically a lot of the reasons for that. But I, I wanted us to talk a bit about, you know, why this has been so, so uh, complex and why it remains actually very difficult for a lot of organizations. So observability, I think the reason why you're seeing it emerge as such a trend is because of complexity. And so uh, the emergence of microservices architectures have, uh, people are seeing a lot of, of what, you know, uh, what I saw 10 years ago in service-oriented architecture, uh, it's, an, it's a, an evolution of the same problem where it's just really difficult for a human to reason about what they're actually running. If you have dozens of teams generating hundreds of potentially maybe even a thousand plus microservices, how do you reason about you know the all the interactions that are happening and it's changing every day because we're deploying to production every day, uh, and when something goes wrong, you know people talk a lot about outages and things like that, but oftentimes it's you know hey this user called the help desk and they're getting an error. Why did they get an error? And and you know who who even would I call about that that particular error? Observability is trying to give people the ability to introspect all the data that that's being emitted by by all of these these applications and giving them the, the ability to, to 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 drill through all of it and the biggest problem that we see with with the emergence of observability is okay I need a lot more data I need 5x 10x more data coming out of these these systems but I don't have I don't have 5 to 10x more budget uh, so how do I how do I get all the data I need in order to properly observe my systems uh, in in the budget that that I can afford, uh, and so that means making a lot of trade offs. It means making decisions about the 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 data that's important, the data that's less important, the way in which we store the data, and the systems that we store the data in, uh, and. With with better solutions to that problems, we can we can deliver significantly more value uh, with better experience to the business who ultimately is the end user of, of all of this. Are you know are the applications that the business is trying to use are they functioning well? Uh, observability gives uh, IT departments uh, an ability to answer that question much more definitively. And you claim that Cribble reduces clients' infrastructure spend by thirty percent on average. Talk a bit about how that's how that's done. People who maybe aren't in deeply into logs and metrics and 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 know this ecosystem really well it seems a little weird that you know if you're building a business application you never want to lose data like if you bothered to collect it it's probably important and you want it to end up in a database somewhere and and uh, end up in some type of schema but but it's different in in observability specifically in, in logging and also in security as well where a lot of this data we just have to have like the for security purposes, I want to be able to go back a year or two years, uh, but I may never read that data back. I just have to have it in case I end up needing it, and the and the value of it is basically zero until it isn't. Uh, and so for that that class of data, putting that into something that makes it easy to search is probably not the right decision. If you're never going to read it back, it's very expensive to put it into, for example, a log analytics tool if it's not providing you any value. So the way the way in which we go about saving people significantly is giving them the ability to make decisions as the data is moving about the right place to put it. If you're not going to read it back, put it in cheap storage. If you are looking at uh, time series type of data, even if it's coming as a log, it may be better to put that into a time series database where it's much more cost effective uh, and throw away the original log data or put the log data someplace cheap for, for later retrieval. 
And then with our ability to replay data out of cheap storage, that means that they don't they don't have to delete the data. They can put it somewhere much more cost effective. And if they ever need to go back in time and get it, they can. And so we're really giving them this this kind of third cheap storage option. You know, you've got your metric store, your log store, and this kind of third cheap uh, object storage where we can dump that data so that they can filter out the data that isn't valuable that that's going to much more expensive uh, systems. Uh, and these people are spending millions a year, and so it's material to be able to trim off thirty percent of the data going to an expensive log store uh, if it's not if it's not providing value to the business. And, and uh, in terms of the companies that you work with, what's the typical role or persona that uh, that you're interacting with? Yeah, so most people probably aren't really aware, but there are tools teams. Like the, this is the name of, uh, they, they will call themselves tools teams. And, and they often are sitting in the network operations center, the security operations center. And, you know, whereas a, a SOC or a NOC may have 10, 20, 30, 50, or 100 people monitoring things all day long, then there's another team of, you know, two, three, five, 10 people who's running all the tools that that those operations centers use to run run their business. And so we typically target the administrators of, of, of these tools, the people who are running monitoring tools that are running logging tools uh, and kind of giving them control. Because in their case, a lot of the the problem that they really face is that they have many other customers inside of the enterprise who are feeding them data. And, you know, they wake up one day and this department that they thought was going to send them, you know, a uh, hundred gigabytes of data a day suddenly is feeding them a terabyte of data per day. And well, man, what do I, what do I do? How do I, how do I enforce some control points so that we can have a negotiation about what, you know, what is, what is okay to send us and what is not okay to send us uh, and, and really giving. And so they're, they're a little bit of an underserved persona. Most people probably don't even know they're there. You know, the uh, they're just kind of sitting there running the tools all day uh, and we're trying to help make their lives a little better. Yeah, very interesting. I also wanted to ask you, um, uh, you know, other than buying your solution, for example, you know, what are some of the things you see as the differentiators for those who are, uh, who, who are most mature from an observability perspective. And, and here I, I like less in terms of the, the tool set or the ecosystem that they, they've assembled of partners. Are there people or process aspects to what you tend to see as differentiators within the organizations you work with who are most successful in, in, uh, in sort of solving some of the, the issues you've described? Yeah. I mean, the, certainly there's a lot of leaders coming out of, of traditional Silicon Valley technology companies that, uh, are, you know, have been doing this for a very, very long time. And we're starting to see that, that kind of culture emanate out into, uh, into the broader market. Uh, and generally the ones that have been more successful have, have invested very heavily in instrumentation and, and putting new uh, ways of gathering data into their applications so that they have the data that they can observe. And really observability is a data problem. The, uh, so, but ultimately that backs up to people problems because if you don't have the, the, the data, you have to go get people to do the work to, 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 to get the data that's going to help them answer the questions that ultimately are going to uh, help them run their, their applications better. Uh, and so the, the most mature shops are the, the ones who are planning in the application development process. How am I going to get this data? What, what data am I going to need to observe my, my applications so that we can provide the best experience to the business possible? Uh, and I think that what you'll see is as digital transformation continues to wake its way through the entirety of, of the enterprise world, uh, people are going to be developing applications that are observable. Yeah. And as, as the, uh, 
has the pandemic been a and and the the the, the quarantine, uh, the economic impact of all of this, the, the the many changes that we've all been going through personally, uh, but more relevantly for this con- this conversation professionally, has it been an accelerant for you? And if so, why? Yeah, I I think everybody's trying to do more with less, um, and that's you know that's the reality we're living in right now, and. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's definitely been uh, it's been it's been a tailwind for us in, in terms of helping people put you know front of mind, uh, hey, like I'm you know my my volume of data is growing by twenty five percent plus a year, and so in five years I'm going to have two point five times the amount of data I have today, but I'm not going to have two point five times the budget. In fact, I know what my budget is next year, and it's probably less than it is now. Uh, so how do I actually achieve that? Like, how do I, how do I achieve better observability uh, with less money? Uh, you know, that's, that's been phenomenal for, for our story uh, and, and the way in which we can help uh, people do more with less and, and fundamentally uh, save money. And lastly, the, the, maybe the toughest question of all, um, where did you come up with the name? Cripple is another word for a sieve. Um, so in, in startup life, I think people assume that like you probably really, really deliberate about a lot of these things. But the uh, the reality was when when we started working on this, uh, we knew exactly how much runway we had left. And we, we sat down in a two day planning session and company name was one thing on the list of the uh, on the agenda. And so we're like, OK, well, getting value out of logs is kind of like panning for gold. So like we started looking through a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, different uh, alternatives in the thesaurus and came across. We I'd never heard the word before. We picked it for the name of the company, uh, but it's a really apt metaphor. Got it. Well, Clint Sharp, thank you so much for taking time with me today. It's been been a, a pleasure to get to know a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. Thanks, Peter. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Carol Jewell, the Chief Information Officer of Synchrony Financial.